Well, um, we have got a lot to try to get through today because there were like several kind of a challenge, a couple of challenging things if they're new to you. The, but the probably the most challenging one is going to be handling the, those a uh, few verses in uh, five to eight, which, uh, yep. <laughs> but I do think it actually becomes more clear as you've done the work. Did you, how many of you guys found that once you got done, you really saw it better and that there was really not the, as big of an issue as you thought it was? Did anybody have a really big heartburn with, with looking at that two, uh, five to eight as being man rather than Jesus? I did too. I kind of went through and said, well, but on the one hand, this could be because, because quite honestly, would you say that what you look at there in five days could apply to Jesus? Are they things that, that at least some of them anyway are, are speaking that? I mean, the idea that things were put at the feet of Jesus, right? That, he's, that, he is, that God would have appointed Jesus over the works of his hands and, and put all things in subjection under his feet. Is, is that a truth, that Jesus is the one who's the sovereign over those? Yes. I think where you begin to, though, better understand who the actual um, intended person is here is man is when you start looking at the other things that are stated in there. Also, I think it, it helps if you look at it from going back to its original um, uh, quote, where the quote comes from, what the intended audience was, what the message was there, and also re remembering the literary work that you're looking in, since so you're looking at it from the perspective of how does literary uh, poetry flow. So let's go and start taking a look at some of that. Um, oh, I forgot to put my chart on here. How did I do that? I'm not, th I'm sorry. I was talking. <laughs> my brain was off and my mouth was running as always. I can do this very quickly though. Okay. Okay, so the first column is going to be that all things are subjected to man, uh, and then you can put man slash the son of man. You can put both of those on there, because I think we're going to be able to clarify and see how those two actually come together. The, the, the place we're going to start out then is in verse 5, uh, which is where our first break is. We saw that in 1 to 4, we saw kind of an, an introductory place where it's speaking about the subject of salvation, Correct. And what is it that we're told in verses one to five or one to four concerning salvation? What are the warnings in there? Do not neglect it. Why not? Okay. So since it did, yeah. 
this will also end how much more great. Okay, so the, the threat basically here is there'll be a, they will be a just penalty if you neglect it, if you forsake it, because after all, what was given previously uh, to Israel, for instance, through the law, and that was witnessed through the angels, that was, although it was a, co a great covenant, it's an it's a inferior covenant, is it not, to the new covenant? What is, how does it become an inferior covenant? In what ways is it inferior that you can think of? Okay, very good. Right. Right. Oh, and, and isn't that a relief? Because consider the difference between my works, if I have to count on me and what I do to get me to heaven, versus on resting on Jesus, who is the sovereign, the all-powerful, the perfect, the flawless one, who, who um, his work, when it's accomplished, is once for all. What a diff what a significant difference that is. So the inferior the inferior one is the law, but the the superior one is the one that's through faith in Jesus Christ, right? And what he's saying is if you ne if you neglect the one that's inferior and there's a just penalty of death, which is what we saw last week, then how much more severe do you think it should be if you neglect the one that is uh, superior. Yes. Okay. Go ahead. It okay, the blood of bulls and uh, goats never could take away the sin, but because Jesus died on the cross, his sin took away. All or his blood completely his took blood it. That's right. Exactly. Okay. So he opens in chapter two, explaining to us then this great salvation. How much more great it is to be under this covenant than it is to be under that old. Old Testament covenant. So that's the beginning in those first four. But when we open up in chapter uh, 2, verse 5, when we move into the next paragraph, what do we see is the subject then that's going on? Chapter 2 says basically it's a greater salvation. So now he be opens in 5, and what does he say about it? That is, in essence, that is, in, the, in a nutshell, what he's saying. He's saying four. Let's put it up here to make it simple to see. Uh, he, God did not subject to angels. The world to come. But... Then what is the but? He doesn't say, but he did subject it to man. He doesn't say it in that way, does he? How does he say it? Someone has testified saying, what, what is man? What? Okay, but. This is, so it's very interesting the way the contrast is stated in this one. Who is man that you remember him? Now, would you, at this point, look at this part of it, just looking at the contrast statement, 
Identify the word man there for me. Is that man us or is that man Jesus? It certainly looks like man us, is it not? What has been the flow of thought so far? The, who is the subject so far? It's us, right? That salvation is for us. We're not to neglect this salvation that's being provided for us. And basically says, after all, God did not subject to angels the world that's to come, but to us, man, right? Now, so, the, so this is point one. The first point is your contrast right away doesn't even bring in the word son of man for you, right? So it's not even on the plate to try to even uh, uh, wrestle over at this point. The clear subject contrast, though, is that he didn't subject it to angels, not to angels, but it is to man. Who is man that you are concerned or that you remember him? Okay, now the next thing we did is we went back and we looked at Psalm 8. So let's do that next. Let's look at our Psalm 8. Oops, that's me. Sorry. Okay, sorry. I thought I had it off. It hadn't rung all morning. Okay, Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is quoted, and that's in verses 6 to 8, right? So we're going to look at 8. First of all, tell me what the literary style of, of uh, Psalm 8 is. What is Psalms? Poetry. So the first thing we're going to say, it's literary style. is poetry. Do you think that's an important thought? Why is that important? In, this, in us trying to come to understanding what's being said in these verses, why is understanding that Psalm 8 is poetry possibly a helpful uh, aid for us? Okay. Right. Well, for one, that's true, right? Absolutely. So it's not, it isn't, it isn't that. Uh, would you say it also when you look at poetry, when you read poetry, that you know that there is creativeness to it in the way that things are said? Do, do not the, the um, uh, poets, when they are writing, do they not often even repeat things? Do they not add descriptive words? Do they not use synonyms? They start with one word, maybe they use another word, and then they use another word, and it all mean the same, and and they accentuate one another in order to make their point, correct? That's how poetry is done, correct? So knowing that the literary style of what we're reading in Psalm 8 is poetry is, I think, a significant point. Because when I went back and looked at that and got to thinking, what is the literary style, it kind of, I kind of went, oh, yeah. So it kind of makes sense then when you go back and look at this where he says, what is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him. Do you see the repetitive statement? It's a rephrasing. Line two. Let's put this up here. Um, line two is a poetical rephrasing. That's how I saw it. Did anybody, does anybody agree or do they see it 
that that is the possibility there? Okay. All right. So knowing its poetry is important, understanding then at this point that the, at least the potential here is that the line two is a rephrasing, right? If it's not a rephrasing, we've already said it looks pretty obvious that man here is man, okay? If, if it's not, then what has happened between the first part of verse 6 and the second part of verse 6 is you've changed from one object of of statement to another. In other words, you're reading it like this. Who is mankind that you remember him or the or Jesus that you are concerned about him? It, it's a switch, isn't it? It's made a it's jumped from one subject to a, another subject, correct? And one noun to a different noun in in essence. That does not even make grammatical sense to me, right? Okay. Then there is this issue here. Okay, so I'm going to say on here, line one is clearly man, meaning mankind. Okay? All right, so how did I want to do this? I actually took some of this stuff out. Let me see if I put it on the back here. I didn't. Let me find. We did last week um, a word study, and I think we did it this week too, the word concerned about. Did you all do that one in your homework? Yes? Let's go and look at that definition of concerned about. In this case, we, what we are given is a definition about God is concerned about man, right? Oh, that's dried out. That's not good. God is concerned about him, is what it says, correct? And so tell me what you learned about concerned about. By definition. Okay, 1980. I don't, I'm not going to put the transliteration. It's a long one. Ep epic. To my whatever, right? A big. Okay, to pay attention to. Okay, to pay attention to is definitely on mine as well. To pay attention to. exercise oversight and then you said to do what to visit with help, help. alright Okay, yes. Okay, so what it is is it goes then later into other cross-references and gives you examples of where that word has been used. So in, in the imagery of what's being stated that God is concerned about him, it's a concern where he sees a need that that, that, that man, he needs help. He needs um, looking after. He needs to be cared for. 
right? Um, one of them that I looked at, it says to care for or look after with the implication of continuous responsibility. Um, I, I thought that one was especially good because that one to me, more of all of the, the things that are being said in there, when you add that on to it, that it's the idea that I need to constantly look after this man. To me, that, it, that took it away from the possibility of it being Jesus, son of man, and made it much more strong that G- God is looking after us mankind. Because when you consider who Jesus is, does he need the Father to be looking after him continuously? Is he in need of help, per se? No. We know that the two are... Well, for insight on how to, on how to answer man, how to, how to speak, what to do, that's true. But he had the power over nature, over health, over, I mean, he had, he did, because he had, okay, now these are some good points to bring up. He did, but did that make him man without, with the need of help? I mean, I know this is, re- is this is a tough one, you guys. This is not an easy one to work through. He took on flesh that he might experientially understand or, or convey with us or converse with us. Yes. Right, right. We were going to get there, so let's do that now. Let's go ahead and add that on. Okay, so we've got our word study. We, yes. Okay, well, you know, it is kind of a tricky one because, okay, yes, yes, God, yes, Jesus. But you know what, guys? This is kind of a serious point, though, to kind of mull over in your mind a little bit while you've got the time to think on it before you get challenged with it. Because there are people whose line of thinking is that when Jesus was flesh, he was purely flesh, and he, he had given up his deity. He, but did he, yes, did, was he still fully God? Absolutely. And with that being fully God, what? Right. He willing, and he willingly even took on flesh. No, he didn't empty himself of deity. He, he emptied himself, meaning he humbled himself. That's what it means. Not, it doesn't mean he emptied himself of deity. That is real. I can't say how strongly this is important, guys, because it really becomes a, a, a fight sometimes. Yes, Carol. Mm-hmm. Thank you. 
Thank you. That is where I want you to get to, get to that place because by definition, he's saying whoever this one that, that God is concerned about, the him here, he is someone that God needs to pay attention to, to care for, to exercise oversight over, and visit. He, he must, it signifies that he must visit him, and it implies that there must be a continuous action on this part. And this does not describe Jesus. I think it's most important for us to always understand that, yes, Jesus took on humanity. He emptied himself in that he humbled himself. He received the, the body of flesh, leaving the heavenly realm and, and subjecting himself to an earthly existence for a period of time, but for one purpose only, that he would help us. And while he was here, did he not profoundly prove that he was still fully God? How, what did he do when he was here that shows us he was fully God? All those miracles and signs. Think about the conversations that he had with people. What kind of insight did he have about their lives, about what their heart's intentions were? Well, he knew their hearts. He knew their hearts always. Every time Every it would says he knew those who were actually out to get him, even when he was in the conversation. He knew who was his and who wasn't. He knew this. How did he know this? Because he's the, the deity God who, has all, who is all-knowing. He did not give up his all-knowingness simply because he took on humanity. Well, uh, the Jews a number of times set out to stone him or, or accuse him of yeah. blasphemy for uh, you know, profaning God. That's right. By the way, your mic is Again? Okay, sorry, thank you. It's, it's just poor, the poor thing. <laughs> I know, we do. Yeah, tape it to my cheek. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 1980 is the, is, um, the Greek. This is Strong's Greek. And then I went to 2170 which is the, the uh, Dictionary of Biblical Languages, in that one it says, um, and using the reference Hebrews 2.6, it shows me it's the word to take care of, to look after, to see to. Okay, so that was the next, so same thing, pretty much the same thing, pay attention, take care of, right? And then the last one is my uh, Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, and I always get the name on this wrong. It's Lo Nida. I think that's the name of the, the writers. L-O-U-W, spelled strangely, and the Nida, N-I-D-A. And in that one, it says to, to care for with the implication of continuous responsibility. So let's put that on there, too. With implication of continuous responsibility. And I thought that one was really interesting. If you try to apply that to Jesus, it does not work. It just does not fit. Okay, so that was one point considering, concerning just simply looking at the literary flow. Now we've looked at the word study of, for the word um, concerned for. But you're right. Concerned for goes back to that he remembered, Right? It's this, it, these two, again, what kind of uh, um, literary form are we in? Literary. 
poetry. So verse 1 is a statement. Verse 2 is a restraint statement. It's a rephrasing of the first statement. So it says it's who is man, who is the son of man. God remembered, God is concerned. Do you see it? All right, I love it. Just that alone is we pretty much can be done, right? Okay, let's see. What does the immediate text state to us then? Let's just, just take a look at that. What does the immediate text tell us about this man that um, we need to know about? How does it describe him in 7 and 8? Okay, is mankind made for a little while lower than the angels? So we've got to consider that it, what that means as far as long term. What is the, the bigger picture on this as far as historically as time moves along, is there a place in time where God intends to usurp us to put us again in a position over the angels rather than, than them seeming to have this position of being greater than us or stronger? Yeah. <laughs> but for it's very interesting to me there's a another statement in 2 9 that says the same thing doesn't it he says in 2 8 that for a little while man was made lower than the angels what does it say in 9 about jesus for a little while jesus also was made lower than the angels did you guys catch that? So, the, the, again, there's the um, Jesus taking on the flesh that he might relate to us, but also to even positionally uh, be placed in that same place where we are now also. And in doing that, then there is an identifying marker. Now, I'm going to ask this question, too, because I always thought this one, to me, this was really interesting. Do you think Jesus had to take on flesh to understand us? No, no, that is not why he took on flesh. So why did he take on flesh? To taste, so to taste death for everyone, that he would help us. He had concern for us. He, he, it says he remembered us. That was very interesting. What does he mean he remembered us? What, what is he remembering that he remembered us, right? But, and we'll get to that. But he had concern for us. He wants to give help. He wants to come to man's aid. That's why he took on flesh. In that last verse, 18, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are being tempted. So does that mean that if he had not taken on flesh and had not been tempted, that he couldn't come to our aid? No. That he wouldn't understand us to be able to come to our aid? No. That he would have no conceptual understanding of where we're coming from or what we're struggling with? No. No. He is all knowledge. And he also, by the way, P.S., created us. So he designed us for, to be who we are. He knows us thoroughly. It was not necessary. It was not necessary for his sake to take on flesh that he could to understand us, right? Right. So I just want to make sure that we clarify in our minds a couple of points here. Number one, Jesus' taking on flesh was not because he had to do it in order to understand us. And he didn't take it on so that he'd be able to know how to help us because otherwise he would be clueless. It wasn't that he couldn't give us help if he didn't take on flesh. He could have. He'd have had another, another avenue to do it. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. 
But what he's showing us here is a different truth. It's a diff- So we have to figure out from what perspective is it speaking of that he had to take on flesh in order to give us aid, right? We have to come to a clearer understanding of what that agenda was in that particular point. Good boy. You just finished all of Hebrews. We're done. <laughs> Parts one, two, three, four. We're done. We're all done. Thank you. All th- you did it, Diane. That was very good. That's exactly right. We needed the help, you know, because one of the points in here is he had concerned about us and that he want he wants to give us aid and he wants to come to our to our um, uh, help. He wants to give us help and he wants to come to our aid because we need it. We need help. We need it. In what capacity is the, the subject matter here about? What do we need help with? Propitiation of our sin. It's about our fallen state. That he is, he is, his agenda, what he had concern for, is our condition. And in it, there was a need for his, to him to exercise oversight. There was a need for him to come and visit us with help. I love that. This one becomes a lot more understandable when you start to see why did he come? He he came to give us help and to give us aid. Okay, so let's go back now. We see that he was made for a little while lower than the angels. So was Jesus, okay? He was what? What else? Crowned with glory and honor. You guys, did you know you are crowned with glory and honor? Already crowned with glory and honor. I love that. Okay, and? Yes, uh uh-huh. Is it all mankind is crowned with glory and honor or those being nailed to the earth? I would say mankind, period. Because of of where we're going to go and look at to see where this is coming from. Okay. <laughs> right. Initially. Now, the ultimate crowning, the, the, here's the problem. We were crowned with glory and honor, but what happened to that? We lost it through, through a condition called sin, right, in the fall. Okay. So he, appoint, he has crowned us with glory and honor. He, that's what is his intended design role. And this is very interesting. When we go in and look, start looking at Satan next in our next part of this discussion, we're going to see that when Satan was created, he was created and designed for a specific work, for a specific abode in heaven, for a specific place, right, in God's scheme of, and his plan of, of all the workings of things pertaining to God and righteousness and all those things which God has in store for us. He had a place for him, and he left it. What did man do? God had a place for us, a designed position for us, a, a glory for us. And what did we do? We sinned. we sinned and fell away from it. Very interesting parallel in that, right? So he, is, he was appointed what? What did God appoint us to? What was our designed role? Over creation. Over creation. He, has appointed, uh, oh, he was appointed over the works of God's hands. All things have been put in subjection under his feet. Now, now we're going to go and look again at Psalm 8. Go back to Psalm 8. And we want to look at exactly which 
I think Craig took us there earlier. What is it specifically when he says in verse 6, you make, you make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now, this is speaking of who? Mankind. This is not speaking here of Jesus, but this one, this particular statement is of mankind. And then he concludes it in verses 7 uh Seven and eight telling us what that means. So tell us what that means. Yeah. So God's designed role. Let's put this on here. God's designed role for man. According to Psalm 8. Uh, to rule over. God's creation, and then it actually lists all those different animals specifically, right? So it's giving us the idea at that point. At that time in history, that's what was there for man to rule over, were the, the, the animals which he had created. No. True. Very interesting. And when you intertwine that sort of with what we saw happen in Ezekiel 28 with Satan as well. Very interesting, huh? Almost like we ran a parallel track with the angels, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Okay, now we, wanna, we go to Genesis 126 to 28, and what do we see? It's a, what is the record of there? Okay, it's the record of creation. That's what's going on in Genesis 1. Remember, Genesis is what kind of literary form? History. So how do you interpret it? Literal. And it's factual, factual, factual. As opposed to poetry, where there's some creative licensing that they take to, uh, in a very creative and flowy way, sort of make statements that are, that are often, um, what is the right word? They're almost, art, they're, they are artistic, right? The, their purpose is not the same as a historical record where they're just going to say, he was here, he did this, this was what happened, this is the location, yeah, this was fair. the time. Those are facts, facts, facts. That's what history is. So it, remember, always, Genesis is a history book. So when you look, whether it's in Genesis chapter 1, when it looks at the creation and God created in one day, on day one, he did this. On day two, he did this. On day three, he did this. That is literal. And when God says it, it's factual. He even defines it for you. There was evening, there was morning, one day. Yeah, it isn't like he didn't have the ability to say it took many years. No. If he'd have wanted to say it that way. But this is a historical record. Why would he write something that was poetical in a historical record, Right. So he's given us a, a record of creation, and in that he tells us what was God's plan for mankind. Once he created man, what did he do with man then? What did he tell man to do? Okay, so in it he told man to rule over creation. Okay, all right, so that's in Genesis 1, 
26 to 28. Okay. Whew. We've done really well at this point. We've got some, I would say at this point, it's pretty clear to me that we are talking six to, uh, six to eight is speaking about mankind, not Jesus. All right, just by this. Now, um, another objection sometimes is this, this usage of the word son of man. Sometimes people get hung up on that and say, well, but, the, but he speaks of son of man and it's always Jesus. Is that true? Absolutely not. So what did you guys discover when you looked at your references on that? We looked in Ezekiel and in Daniel and in Jeremiah. What did you see? Even the prophets specifically were called son of man. I love that. We came out of Ezekiel not that long back. And over and over, Ezekiel was told, son of man, do this. Son of man, do that. Right? So he was referred to as son of man. Now, we did come also into a reference that Kay took you to, and, and my question to you is, why did she take you there, right? Daniel 7.13, who is that being spoken of there? That one is clearly Jesus, and what is he called? One like a son of man. So the interesting thing to me is here is that Jesus is one like a son of man. He's often called the son of David. And in context, when that is used, what is the implication? That he has a lineage and that he has humanity, right? But it never says that he is a man. But simply that he took on flesh, right? But not that he became man. And he never loses his, his deity. Yeah. He was fully man, but he was fully deity as well. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, the Gnostics, this is one of the big issues when First John was written, was written to refute that, that, that <laughs> Jesus was not fully God, that he only um, took on uh, the deity at certain times and then he took on humanity at other times and it was like a back and forth thing. And they, they do not believe that uh, humanity can ever take on deity because they believe that, that deity is, is spirit and fully good. Humanity is flesh and evil. And therefore, there, the, he cannot do that. It could not possibly happen that God would take on, on physical flesh because it's evil and bad. So it's, it's a point. In uh, which one? To read it for us. Do you have it? Oh, okay, because I don't have that one open. Yeah, because I, no, I didn't go on down to 14, because what I saw in here was she was trying to point out, I think, the fact that Jesus can be called Son of Man, and we know that's true. He is called Son of Man on occasion. So if, if you're look, he even calls himself that. Okay, so go ahead and finish, go ahead and read that first. Okay, so it just goes on to explain that he is the one who ultimately all will serve. Awesome, okay. Um, now I lost my train of thought though, let me think. What was I saying? It's, it's one of those moments. <laughs> I'm having a senior moment, but I'm refusing to claim to be a senior yet. 
I am getting those stupid pieces of mail, though, however. All right, let's go back. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm not owning them, however. Okay, so, so here's my question. I, I remembered. Conclusion. How do we determine then, in this particular case especially, how do we determine is this speaking about Jesus or is this speaking about man? Thank you. Good job, Janice. You get star for the day. Yoo-hoo. Context must, must rule for your interpretation on what you're looking at. And what we see then so far in the literary flow of things, that line one is clearly man and, and Line two is simply a, po- a poetical rephrasing of it. We see that he's concerned about him. God is concerned about him. This kind of concern is speaking of the one who is the weaker vessel that needs help. This would not be Jesus. We see that initially God did design us for ruling over the earth. And so th- those statements that are made here in this quote are clearly true. And so you go back to Genesis and you affirm that. Now what we need to do is look at the flow of thought then. Man, son of man, concerning him, when you move on to the next few verses, uh, what is it saying in verse 10, shortly after that? Because after 9 is about Jesus, right? So we're going to skip that verse. We know that Jesus is brought up in verse 9. And, and in that, he talks about, he introduces Jesus, however, as what? How is he introduced in 9? He gets introduced... Lower than the angels, and for the purpose of what? That he might taste it. That's right. So he's going to be the suffering Savior, and that's why he took on flesh for us, so that he would be able to take on uh, or to uh, endure death for our sake, right? Um, And then in verse 10, then it says, concerning man, what? What's going on concerning man in verse 10? What's the major subject? salvation again so again you're back to the subject of salvation right so can you see at least at this point even that we start out with the subject of salvation we we are introduced to um the contrast that god did not create the world to come for angels but for man we see man the purpose for man in the beginning was we were designed to rule over this creation which, by the way, right now we're not because he concludes it, but we do not yet now see all things in subjection to man. The question should be, why not? What happened that we're not seeing men ruling as we're supposed to be, right? But he goes then, he brings Jesus back onto the subject again and says, but Jesus came. He came in flesh so that he could die so that he would make that, that available to you, he, so that he is crowned with glory and honor. Verse 10, and he did all this for your salvation in 10. Okay, so then in 11, he says of him what? He actually compares us man to Jesus man. The sons of man and the son of man are compared. And what does it say about them? Yeah, and what does it say that we are both from? One Father. Very interesting, isn't it? How it brings, it brings Jesus then back to that place of humanity that he has taken on flesh for the sake of accomplishing the work of the Father. We have one Father. 
with one plan, with one agenda. God, in the beginning, created man, put him in the garden, intended for him to rule. So now the Son of Man has come so that he took on flesh that he might begin the process of bringing us back to that which God designed us for. It's really cool. That's right. Not ashamed to call us brethren. Yes. That is pretty cool. I like that too. Yeah, but he's proud when we don't sin. Of course. Yes, of course. Well, but the thing is he knows we he knows we do, which is why he came to begin with, right? So Yes. Okay. Those who who the one who is that sanctifies and those who are sanctified. Right. So my point is, in the flow of thought here, the subject matter is, is that man had a position, God intended for us, and we apparently lost it. The flow of thought here establishes right at the first four verses, pay attention to this so great a salvation. Understand that, that, that it is um, a knowledge which there will be responsibility in that that if you neglect it there will be a just recompense for neglecting it then he goes on to explain what that place was that God intended for us and how God is going to bring us back to it isn't that awesome and it and oh by the way yes back to the first point he didn't subject these things to the angels about your salvation God has a plan in it and that is to bring you back to to where you were yes to right, that's right right from chapter one he's been contrasting something with the angels first he contrasts Jesus with mm-hmm. the angels in chapter one and now he's contrasting man, man with the angels right Jesus in with men right. That's right. And in both cases, God is Christ, Jesus, the Son of Man, is greater than the angels. And by the way, he's also even greater than man in that he comes to give man help. Right? right? So I know that Kay actually says chapter 1 and chapter 2 are both on the subject of angels. But I really do see the switch to man. And, and it isn't that I don't understand there's a continuation because for this reason connects one to two. And there is a flow of thought in there. And angels definitely are still in the mix in the conversation. But the emphasis ceases to be from chapter one where it was this obvious constant contrast between Jesus and the angels. But in chapter two, it's showing our relationship. It isn't exactly a contrast. It's more, what is our relationship to Jesus? Jesus came, he took on flesh, but that doesn't make him equal to us. He is greater than us. He came to give us help. He came, he came because he's concerned for us. He came to be, to give us aid in our time of need. God. Absolutely. He's our savior. He's a man who becomes our Yes. Yes. Yeah. All right. So my title in two was Jesus was made like man to give help to man. And giving help to man equals salvation. That's what the subject matter is. It's about salvation. Okay. All right. So that kind of concludes that part of your homework. Did it, are there any further insights or, or comments about this particular translation did anybody else still hung up on this whether or not this is speaking of mankind or or the son of man jesus
<laughs> Isn't that the truth? Oh, yes, I, I do agree with you on that one. It kind of gives you a little more perspective about where we're going, where we're heading in the, the new reign eventually, yes? Mm-hmm. about the son of man way down here. Right. You know, that's a really good point, Brenda. It seems like it does. A real contrast. Did you hear what she's saying? Who, who, is this, who are you, old man, that God is concerned about you? That wouldn't be Jesus. Right? It's, it's oh, God, why are you concerned about me, man? And then the restatement then in line two that rephrases it and calls them son of man. Absolutely. There's there's more to the story than just that. Right. That's right. And it's and it's explaining to us why he took on the flesh of man because the requirement was necessary in order to do, in order to make that propitiation, which the subject then of propitiation comes up in here. And it isn't expounded on yet. It will be much later. But he at least opens it. But what he's doing for us is he's giving us foundational truths. He's starting this book out by giving us who is God, who is man. Chapter 1, who is God? Who is Jesus? He is God. Who is God? He is the creator. He is the sovereign. He is the all-powerful. He, you know, he goes, he goes through that, that he is the, the creator and savior. Um, he is the begotten and the firstborn from the dead, the one who is resurrected. So therefore, in that statement that he is the, the firstborn from the dead gives us the confidence that if he has been resurrected from the dead, that what? What can he do for us? We also can be resurrected from the dead. He's promised that. He did it for his son. He will do that for us. Um, all right. So now we have handled the first segment of the homework very quickly. Let's move on now to the next one. So if all things are subjected to man, the question then would be, right, why don't we see it now? Why don't we see I'll just put see it now to shorten my title there. Why don't we see it now? If all things are subjected to man, then why aren't we seeing it right now? What happened? What happened? The fall. fall. So we're going to look at the fall. And we did this in our homework this week. Did you guys enjoy your little mini run through the scriptures on Satan on this? was very good. So he says in Genesis 1.21 that man, uh, man was created and God gave him rule, right? Man was created and God gave him rule. Gave him to rule. That's in our Genesis reference that we looked at. So I'm going to put 2.16 and 17. That was the verse that we all looked at, Correct. Then what did God do when he, after he put him in the garden and said, I want you to rule and subdue and so forth. 
He, get, he also did something else. He did give them a command. What was the command? Yeah. And when God gives a command, what do we call that? Law. <laughs> right? Law. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Instituted law. Okay, sorry. You're right. I'll put it over here. Okay, so this is Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Okay, I got it right now. Okay, so the first reference is man was created, and God gave him to rule over things. That was in Genesis 1. The second point that we looked at in our homework was that God instituted law in Genesis 2. And then what happened shortly thereafter in chapter 3? Man broke the law. And we call that what? (laughs) Or sin. (laughs) We call it the fall. We call it sin. We call it disobedience. All kinds of things. So we're looking at chapter 3, verses 1 to 8 then. That was the next place. And one of the things she didn't do with us, though, was to take us into verse 15. Uh, She took us into the verses that followed that in 16 on, right, where it showed God had instituted law and man had broke it. But if you back up a little bit before that, you also see, I think, another really important piece of this puzzle. And that is that when he was dealing with the serpent who had deceived her, right? What was it that God promised to basically to man concerning that they would die? Well, he he the the, the law says that man would die if he if he disobeyed or if he ate of the tree, if he he would disobey then he would die. Um but what was the promise made? In 15 Yes. Her, she, her seed would bruise the serpent's head. Yes. And the serpent would bruise his head. Okay. So in verse 15, we see that although man had broke the law, we also see that God understood that then there was this need. That's where it's really established is back in verse 15. That then God would send a seed who would crush the head of Satan. It doesn't state it quite that clearly, but when you look, research it, that's what it's speaking of. It's crushing the head of Satan. So I would like to just add that into the mix here with, even though you all didn't look at that verse. But God promised man a seed. Mankind. Sorry. Mankind, a, 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 to bruise the head of the serpent. I'm going to put Satan since we know, right? Is that okay? <laughs> All right. Okay. And that's why I like to use the word crush, because to me that's more, it's, it's more clear that what ultimately is going to occur is this seed that would come from mankind. In this case, the woman was told this, that from, from her seed would come the one who would crush the head of Satan, right? Because the, the problem here is, was the serpent, the serpent was the instigator in this mess, right? Not that man is without fault in it, obviously, because who ended up being judged? Did man, ultimately. 
both were judged. One was told all his life he would, he would um, be a, upon his belly, basically, right? He was a vessel through which Satan was operating. And that vessel was used by Satan to entice the woman to eat of the tree, right? All right, so let's look at who that serpent is. You all looked back in Revelation. So let's title this Satan. And let's go in and look at this. Who is this, or I guess I should have titled it the serpent. Let me do it that way. The serpent. Because that's what it says in, in Genesis, correct? That he's called the serpent. So in there, although he's called the serpent in, in uh, Genesis, who is the serpent by identification? We looked in uh, Revelation 12. Somebody open that up and take a look and give me some instruction about that. I would like to hear what it says. Okay, he's the devil and he is Satan. That's in Revelation 12, 9. All right, so that gives us an identification now of who that serpent was in the garden. It's very interesting to me, though. Obviously, the serpent was an entity through which Satan was operating, correct? Because that entity, the serpent, was told that from that point forward, he would, he would, um, he would live upon the earth upon his belly all the days of his life. Okay, so there was a curse upon him specifically where he would be re relegated to, Right? Satan is not relegated to slithering upon the earth, right? He, he is still a, a principality of the air. And so we know that this is speaking about an agent through which this, the, the devil or Satan was working or was operating, correct, at this point. All right, so these are kind of little subtleties, I think, but they make such a significant uh, difference if, if you totally grasp the concept of an agent through which Satan was operating, as opposed to it actually being Satan himself. Because later when you look in uh, imagery books, particularly like in Revelation, when you see in what we just looked at in the, the uh, dragon in chapter 12 of Revelation, later he's described as having seven heads and ten horns. And who are the, t the seven heads? Who do they depict? Does anybody remember from... They're world powers. That's right. They were world powers. And what about the crowns? What do they depict? The kings who rule over those kingdoms or those world powers, right? And yet the body of the creature is still who? Satan. So what is the imagery in that? If the body is satanic, but the heads are governments, and the crowns are the kings that run them. What is that showing you? The basic uh, influence that is controlling them. There you go. That's right. That the influence of them is Satan. Right? This the spiritual influence. That's what we are seeing here. The serpent was in the garden. The influence was Satan. Satan worked through the serpent. The serpent then was condemned. Was told he would he would slither upon his belly as a consequence for this. All the days of his life. It isn't so much in. It isn't so much in dwelling, uh, well, Celeste. Say, but, so, so I don't get it. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, 
how, when you think of people in world powers, like, um, look at all the kings throughout the ages. Look at a Hitler. Is he Satan? No. Was he demonically controlled, however? Yes. In a spiritual realm where there was his mindset controlled through the influence of Satan. Yes. That's what we're talking about. Well, that's what God, that because that was God's condemnation. Why did the entire earth receive a just a, a judgment? What did God? How, what did God judge against the earth at that time? It was evil. No. Thank you. That's right. Thorns and thistles will will you will eat of the of the fruit of the ground, but it is become corrupted because of what man did. There was a consequence that occurred because of man's sin. The earth was was uh, judged basically. One day God is going to rejuvenate that, and bring it back to its original state, and we will not have thorns and thistles. Won't that be nice? Right, And so in the case of the serpent, the serpent allowed himself, apparently, by, by, for whatever reason, and God, God said of him he would condemn that particular entity that he would slither upon his belly all the days of his life. Now, who or what that serpent was, we don't, we're not told. Uh, Romans 8 does a great job of, of addressing this whole thing. Okay, go ahead. 820, so the creation was subjected to futility. Yes. That's exactly right. I love that. One day it will be brought back. It will be restored. And it, look, and it looks forward to the day when God does that restoration. Yes. Yes. Right. That's right. Okay. All right. So Satan... Let's go to Ezekiel 28 then and look at this also from another perspective. The first perspective, we see it as the serpent being um, motivated or influenced by the devil. And he then tempted man and man fell. So now we see another picture of this and this is the, the king of Tyre. And the reason I guess I'm kind of just spending a little bit of time on this is because I think this is a, a building block for better understanding of books like Revelation where the imagery is given that there's an entity which is supernaturally uh, uh, swayed or motivated or influenced, right? And we do see this in Ephesians. Ephesians 6 says that the, that the principalities of the air are that which influence, right? Okay, so the king of Tyre in this case is who? He, he's a king, right, at the time in history. At that time in history, he was a king. And so Ezekiel would have known him, and he starts to speak of him. At what point do you realize, however, that we're no longer speaking about an earthly king? Is there a place along here where you're going, now, wait a minute. You were in Eden. Aha, that's a clue. You were in Eden, and, and how does he describe Eden? 
In verse 14, he also calls it what? The holy mountain of God. So it's very interesting where we see this definite change. And how does he describe this place? The beauty of, of, of it, right? Okay, so what, is, what has happened? God created the king of Tyre, who we, we now are beginning to see through what we've looked at here before, is speaking also of something else. And when he created them, how did he create him? Imperfection. Now, that should be your first clue. We are no longer talking about the king of Tyre. Our, is man... When he comes on the earth today, after the fall, are we, when we come into the world, are we in perfection? No, we are already in that fallen state, are we not? All right, so he, whoever this, this king of Tyre is that's being personified through, he was created by God in perfection, and he was placed in God's garden, correct? In verse 13, he, he describes him, wow, he is beautiful. Listen to all the things that are that are precious stones, ruby, topaz, diamond, burl, ox, uh, jap, jasper, the, the lapis. I mean, he is just gorgeous. The gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub. Oops. What's a cherub? It's an angel. So now we now know that it's no, it, for sure it is not speaking anymore about the king of Tyre, but it has made a transition to definitely a cherub, correct? All right, so in the Garden of Eden, he's a cherub. And in verse 15, what happens? So he started out blameless. Did, how, does this parallel with anything else we know about? We started out blameless, did we not? When God created us in the garden, his conclusion statement at the end of that creation work was what? It is very good. This, so we also were created in a, a state of blameless and perfection. The angel that is being spoken of here, this cherub, was created blameless in all his ways from the day that he was created until what happened? Unrighteousness was found in him. Now that gives you an indication to then concerning him, does he have free will? Apparently. Yeah? Apparently he has free will because he made a choice. So what did he do? What did God do concerning him? He had sinned and so then what did God do? Yeah, therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. I have destroyed you, O covering cherub. Now, very interesting. Has God at literally uh, destroyed Satan at this point? No. So what is he speaking of here? A future event. In other words, it's a, it is a, it's a decree that he's pronouncing, right? It's a decree that one day I am going to accomplish this. But in my economy, in God's way of looking at things, it's just like how we've, we've talked about so much already in this, in this study, how there is, a, there is a spiritual fact in the mind of God, and then there's a day of reality when it comes into its fruition, right? God is saying here, I have condemned you. You, uh, and I have destroyed you, right? And then he says, why? What was the problem with this? Why did this, did this cherub sin? It, 
In verse 17, it says his heart was what? Lifted up. Now, if you do your word study, that's speaking of pride and arrogance, right? You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. And so I cast you to the ground. Now, here what we see him saying is cast him to the ground. What is that speaking of? Where was he? He was in the heavenlies with God upon God's holy mountain. And now I have cast you to the ground. So what is that telling you? He cast him to the earth. Okay. Uh, does that parallel with something we've looked at before about Satan when he was cast down? Yeah, it does. Back to our revelation. He speaks about one third of the stars he even took with him. Right. And they were cast down. Yes. Fall like lightning. That's exactly right. Very interesting, too, because if I'm not mistaken, I think that one is making a reference to what's going to occur at the end time, I think. I think, yeah, but I think it is. So that's very good. Yes. Okay. Um, he says, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth. Now, I looked that one up because I thought that one was interesting statement. Um, he, to, it means to be uh, made worthless. It's used as a figurative speech. As a, it's an it's a imagery thing of meaning of insignificance or loathsomeness. So I made you ashes is saying to him, I, sh I made you. And he does it before the world, actually. He says, a state of dishonor, a low status characterized by public disgrace. So in other words, he took him from his position of, of high and exalted honor in the heavenlies on God's holy mountain, he cast him to the earth. And now on a, on a regular basis, God disgraces him by proving that he doesn't have the power he says he has, by proving that he's not as all great as he says he is, by, not, by him not being able to exalt himself above God as he so chose to. He's actually in a state of dishonor and of unimportance. So he presently wanders the earth being repeatedly defeated by God, proven as insignificant and loathsome by public disgrace. Very interesting when you look at it that way. Um, and then he says in conclusion, and you will cease to be forever. All right, so the king of Tyre then is, is a personification, correct? And it's of Satan and his fall. So we start with a man who is the king of Tyre, who obviously has a lot of these same qualities about himself as well, right? He was created in perfection. He was blameless in the day. He's talking about how great he was, how wonderful he was, how beautiful he was, how exalted he was. But then he sinned and God had cast him from uh, the mountain of God. His heart was lifted up and he will cease to be forever. What is that telling you about the king of Tyre in that day? He, sounds like he, it sounds to me like he was in big trouble too, wasn't he? He himself had apparently thought himself to be greater than he was. He himself had also exalted himself and had, had gotten uh, too proud and too arrogant. And so God was uh, casting a judgment upon him, giving a statement that, that he was going to be cast down also. All right, so what was the result of sin? Let's go back to Genesis 3, 1 to 8. We see that when man sinned, then what happened to man? What happened to the world? It was all accursed and, and sin entered, right? 
what is it? What, I want to look at some verses. We didn't really look at these. I want to see what else is the result of this. Look, somebody look up Luke 4, 6 and 7. Who would like to do that one for me? Luke 4. Okay, Celeste. 1 John 5, 19. Thank you, Martha. And um, Ephesians 6, 12. Who would like that one? Okay, thank you. All right, so let's go through those because I want you to listen carefully. We didn't do this part in our homework, but I thought it was also a significant point, and I thought it was interesting. We see sin entered into the world. That was one consequence. Another consequence of man having sinned is in Luke 6. So who reads Luke 6? Okay, so this context on this is Jesus being tempted, right, in, the, in uh, the wilderness. And he's having a confrontation with Satan. Now read it again so that they hear it. Okay, and the devil said to him, I will give you all of this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Okay. It was already God's, which is ridiculous, right? <laughs> which is pretty funny. But the interesting point that I want you to pick up on is what has been given to, to Satan, according to this statement? The domain of the earth. Right. Satan clearly says at this point here that the consequence then to our sin was God had given us glory and honor. He had given us domain. But now at this point, this domain is being give, has been given over to Satan. That is why you do not yet see man, right? You don't see man yet. Uh, where was it? I didn't have it up here. That, that although man has been given this glory and honor, we do not yet see it, right? Why? Because it's been given over to Satan because of the fall. 1 John 5, 19. Okay, so there's another one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Presently, the power of this world, which has the strong domain, not, is not us. It is the evil one at this moment, right? With limitations, we're not going to go there, but there are limitations, as we, as we probably already know. Now, Ephesians 6.12 Wow. Okay, so in that one, again, what we see is when you and I are, are operating in the world that we're in, the things that we are battling against ultimately are spiritual. Yes. And who is the, the ruler of the spiritual realm? Satan. Satan. All right. So uh, this was, it was Luke 4, 6 to 7. That's the, with Jesus in the wilderness, right? So we see, let's look on here. Result. Of sin. Number one, it is that, that sin itself entered, entered our world, entered the world. And number two, that Satan was given um, spiritual realm of power, right? And you can, I'm, I'm just going to put Ephesians on here, but you've got, all of them are on my list for you later. Um, 
All right. So that is the first two points. Then the next point, we looked at some cross-references, so let's go look at those. John 8, this is on day 3, page 51 on your homework. You looked at John 8, Ephesians 2, um, I guess those were the two primary ones, but there, there might have been another one. It seems like there was one more. I may not have put it on my... Okay. Okay, so tell me what did you learn there? What is the result then according to those verses? Yeah, John 8, 34, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Genesis, Genesis 3, 16, and Romans 5, 12. Okay, so now we are dead. So one of the results is man is now dead in sin. Was that uh, the Romans one? No. Oh, okay, sorry. Okay, thank you. Man is dead in sin and by nature children of wrath. I'll, I'll put on that. I'll, I think I'll add that on. By nature. Children of wrath. Okay, so that's in Ephesians uh, 2. All right, so there's another consequence to our sin. Sin entered the world, Satan given spiritual realm of the powers, and man is now dead in sin. What else? We are a slave of sin. And what verse is that one from? 834. Okay, good. All right. So, any other points? Any other consequences that you can think of besides those? Okay, so there's a, again, we're back to what Diane brought up earlier. There's a judicial headship then that comes into place. It doesn't say that, but we can conclude that from that state that all, now all men are what? Are fallen, right? And what is that reference that you used? Okay, Romans 5, 12, which is the federal headship chapter. Federal headship. If those, for those who didn't do that one with us, we'll have to cover that one one day together. It's a bigger, it's a longer explanation than that. But all men now are fallen because of that. We are federally under Satan. And unless we make a federal headship move, you know, you're represented by someone, right? Everyone has a representation. Whoever is your umbrella over you is the one you are federally under. You are uh, in, in um, a, um, submission underneath them. So in the federal headship of chapter 5 in Romans, it says you are either federally in Adam or you are federally in Christ. In Adam, this is your condition. You are dead in your sin by nature. You are a slave of sin and you are in a fallen state. And in order to make that move, you must do what? You must put your faith and trust on Jesus. Now, Romans doesn't talk about our responsibility to put our faith and trust in Jesus, but rather it puts its emphasis upon what Jesus did to make it available to us. Right? Carol. Right. But we did. 
just as the angels did. It seems to me that every, anything that has free will that is created has a desire to usurp its power over it. It's very interesting. But there is a choice in it, correct? And although we've, we, we are born now federally under that fallen state and are federally in a, a position, and quite honestly, by our nature, by who we are as human beings, we are always going to have a temptation to want to sin and rebel and reject authorities over us, right? Um, so what we're looking at in, in Hebrews then is the, is the, um, um, the solution to that dilemma of this constant uh, power hungry or power war that goes on between us and authority. So what Jesus is going to do then is say, I'm going to make a, a way available for you to be put in, in a right place before me. And in that, it's covered by grace. Because guess what? I know you're not ever going to not sin. But what I want to know from you is from the free will choice of your heart, will you, will you choose to follow me? It doesn't mean you will do it continually, always, but it means that you will faithfully desire to follow God in all things, right? And so it's a choice is what it is. It comes down to being our choice. Um, okay, so why did Jesus come then according to Hebrews? What was his purpose in coming? Man, the result was uh, sin, and what is Jesus' solution? Jesus comes to help, right? Where is our help? Okay, he made propitiation. And that's in 2.17. What else did he do? In those closing verses, I think in 14, 15, all the way down to the end, but in particular. Yes, he frees us from slavery, okay? How did he do that? Oh, I thought it said by his death. Oh, okay, good. All right. And is that he had to become flesh in order to do that? That's the whole point, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Is that uh, 15 or 16? 14? Okay. All right. So he freed us from slavery by his death. Actually, I think. Yeah, it is. I'm going to put both on there because I had 15 on my notes here. What did he do to the devil? <laughs> he rendered the devil powerless. I love this. If you look at this from the perspective of how we've kind of flowed with this, man fell. Who, who was the tempter? It was the serpent. We see the serpent explained to us in the personification that's given to us in the king of Tyre. That was in Ezekiel 28. Right? And then we see the result of, 
of all of that. That fall resulted in Satan-given spiritual realm of power, man dead in his sin, man a slave to sin. And so where is our help? According to Hebrews, it comes, our help comes from Jesus. He is the one who gives help to man. Very interesting, too, is how it was contrasted in that verse that he does not give help to who? The angels. That's interesting to ponder on a little bit, huh? The angels. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, we get help, but they don't get help. Now, if you think on it just a little bit, why would that maybe be? Why do you think that might be? I mean, because we don't have the answer to that. So we can just ponder it a bit. But. Sounds like Solomon, huh? <laughs> yes? Okay. So, so number one, the, this angel in particular that we get insight into is Satan. Satan had wisdom, right? What else? They had direct access to the throne of God. He was on the mountain of God in God's very presence. By faith, that's right. That's right. That's another point. We are different. Although there, I gotta say, there are some some qualities about angels that are similar to us. They are also called sons of God. We are called sons of God, right? Which is one of the problems with Genesis six's interpretation, right? Because some people want to say that Genesis six is angels rather than man. Um, I personally believe it's man. Huh? Okay, th th right. How about the choice of sinning or not sinning? Angels, did they have that choice? They did so. Obviously, they also have free will, right? Um, we also see other little glimpses into them. They have a curiosity about things that kind of, that is similar to us and also. When some fell, Right. Well, now, it's very interesting is, why do you think it became universal to all man? What, was, what is the picture in that for us? Well, for one thing, there's, there's the progenesis, you know, or whatever. You know, um, mankind begets mankind or, or something like that. So it's angels don't create other angels. Or True. Angels they don't procreate. Yeah. Angels do not procreate. Okay. <laughs> right. 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 Well, and I, you know, I just also think that, that, you know, when, when you look at it from humanity's, is there ever been a human being that you've ever known that did not come out of the womb sinning almost? Do we not have this struggle of power over us? We, we fight with our brothers and sisters. We fight with our parents. We fight then in our job environments. We fight with you know, the grocery store or something. I mean, there's always a power struggle going on with mankind. Do you know of any human being that doesn't have this power struggle? It's about our will, right? And our will to want to have power over things. Because what did God created us to do? 
have power and dominion over things. So by design, that's what we're designed for. So in that regard right there, you know that then universally the idea of, the, of, of passing judgment on all humanity is within all humanity is that capacity and that desire to sin. And God knew that. So he, he determined a federal law. He says, this is how it is. I know, I know, because I'm God, all men are going to have this struggle. There's not going to be, there is no one that does right. No, not one. Right? He didn't make us... He doesn't sin. He still sounds like he has this thinking process or whatever, because it says he changed his mind occasionally when it would say he was talking to Job or somebody or uh, Abraham to please. No, he relents. Yeah, he will relent, but he has a plan and agenda which does not change. The unchangingness of God is pertaining to his moral law and his holy his holiness. Ultimately, what what is God's desire? His biggest desire is not that man gets saved. What is his biggest desire? That his name be vindicated in the world because his glory, his honor. All through Ezekiel, we saw that over and over. He will vindicate his name. And so, you know, I think that man tends to take everything in the word of God and turn it towards us. That everything that God does is about us. But the real reality here is it's about God who God is, and that we are to recognize that, bow our knee, and thank him for who he is. Because he is, uh, he does not sin. He is not vengeful like we are. He is not, ra- he does, his, in his wrath, he, he, ex- he um, um, executes wrath in righteousness. It's a righteous anger, which is, you know, man deserves if he, if he receives it. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. Has relented. And there, that's where there's a distinguishing difference. He doesn't change his mind about those moral truths, those, those, uh, the, the big plan concerning God's ultimate goal, which is to bring about really this, this eternal life in, in I, what I call like a utopia. You know, you talk about utopias in TV shows all the time, and they, they sound so fictional, and in the end, they're really bad, right? But God's utopia is going to be great. <laughs> in his kingdom, he's going to bring about moral righteousness and, and holy living for God's people. And it's all contingent upon one thing. We believe God is who he says he is, and that we bow our knee to it. In Hebrews, it says... Um, uh, it's required that we that we believe that God is and that He's a rewarder of those that love Him and those that seek Him. There is a man, and the man's name is Melchizedek. According to the order of <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay, so we now see then why don't we see it now? What's the reason? It's the fall. 
we've lost it, we gave it up, we handed it over to Satan, and now God is in the process of restoring it for us, right? All right, so, son of man, he is bringing many sons to glory. Really big titles this time, huh? Okay, let's talk about this world to come because this was another subject that we were to look at. In verse 5, Kay says somewhere in the homework there, it's kind of like in that one passage here, it says, it says somewhere <laughs> this. Well, I'm going to say, well, Kay says somewhere in the homework, <laughs> somewhere that verse 5 is our pivotal uh verse in this particular chapter, that it shows us kind of the understanding of really everything else that we're looking at. If you grasp what's going on in verse 5, then the verses that follow it, you understand it's speaking about man, right? And I think we've already pretty much established that, but let's go back and look at this subject. It's about the world to come, and what does that mean, right? The world to come. Um, did anybody look that one up? I think we were supposed to, right? Well, there's two words, actually. It's um, the world. And then to come. The world is what we want. The world is, is, the, is the major subject here. Okay, it's 3625, and what did you learn about it? Okay. It's the whole inhabited earth. What else? Anything else you want to add to that? The terrain, yeah. I think it's got, I think it has to be speaking about the terrain. Okay, so, but you know what's very interesting, terrain, I don't know what that word, I didn't look it up. Did you look it up by chance when you didn't know what it meant? I always do. If I'm looking at a word and I'm going, I don't know what they mean by that, I have to look it up. It has to be that what that particular definition, you know, there's going to be a couple of different kinds of definitions. There can be the inhabited earth, which, where the emphasis then is upon habitation of it. It's, that's what the world is speaking of, is the people of it. Or it can be talking about the terrain of it, meaning the physical uh, geography, you know, the mountains, the, the seas, the oceans, the whatever, the dirt, you know. And in which case, which do you think we're speaking about the world to come in this context? Are we talking about the physical earth or are we talking about the people upon it? Yep. I did. Uh huh. That's exactly right. Okay, so I'm going to read what mine said. I did the same thing that you did. I went into like three different dictionaries to get a bigger, fuller picture to make sure I got the fullness. The whole inhabited earth, that was what you gave me earlier. The world, the world to come, which is the verse we're actually looking at. And it says the future world is another way it also speaks of it. This has generally been interpreted as being equivalent to the coming age. But the use of this word, this Greek word, would seem to imply an inhabited world. 
Okay, so it's speaking of the inhabitants of the world, so, so to speak. So the whole inhabited world. Now, it could mean, as uh, James just said, why couldn't it mean all of, all of it, both, in other words, the animals and the, the, uh, the because that is initially, according to Psalm 8, what we were given uh, rule over, where the fish of the sea and the, the birds of the air, and isn't that going to be interesting? How many of you guys have read some of those passages where it talks about the lion laying down with the lamb, yeah. and the child will play at the, at the nest of an asp, and the asp will not harm the child, so these snakes won't... That's very different. Yes, but they won't be in the new kingdom. Won't that be awesome? I will be able to go outside... <laughs> I'm excited because I'm allergic to like everything. So when, if I get outside and the bugs bite me, my ankles swell up the size of King Kong and I can't put my shoe on. And, and it's just, you know, they, so I just avoid outside altogether. I stay inside. Consequently, that's why I quilt a little bit. <laughs> okay, the world to come, the whole world, the inhabited earth. Okay, so now we looked at Ephesians and Matthew and Daniel. This is on day four and five, page 53 of your homework. Let's flip over to those. One of the things Kay had also asked you to do was to draw a picture. Did you all draw a picture? <laughs> you want to see my picture? I'll show it to you real quick. It's funny. That's the earth. <laughs> That's us. <laughs> That was my picture. <laughs> feet on top of a world. <laughs> underneath imagery, yeah. Not yet in subjection to us, and then all things will be under his feet. God left nothing that is not subject to man, all the works of God's hands. So what I, I know, I just, so all the works of God's hands, he has put underneath our feet. So I, I created the world and put our feet on it. <laughs> that was my picture. So how hard was that? A little bit of imagination, you got it done. Okay, but it is real powerful when you do things like that because it helps to establish in your mind the concepts that God is teaching in his word. Okay, so now let's go back to day four and five on page 53. You were asked to look at a variety, and she says, what's going, going to happen in the future? Read the following verses and record your observations. Note the relationship of angels to Jesus in Matthew 24. Uh, 531. So in Matthew 25, 31, I actually went all the way down into uh, 34 uh, on that Matthew account. Let me read it to you. 2531, this is the verse you were given. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. That's all she gave us. Okay, so that's a good important point. We're going to put that up. But let me go on and read. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right, the goats on his left, and then the king will say to those on his right, that would be us, us who are believers in other words, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I love that. I went on down to to those few verses that followed. I thought they were really good. Okay, so let's look at this world to come. Um, what do we see in Matthew 25 then? What's going to happen? 
Okay, we will come with him and? Oh, the angels will come with him and? Okay, Jesus will come in his glory and he'll do what? There we go. We'll sit on his glorious throne. I love that. Okay, that's in Matthew 25:31. What else did you see? What are some other things that are going to happen in this world to come where we're going to be ruling, where we're going to have things restored to us, where his propitiation will have completed its work for us, and now we are entering into this world to come. What is this world to come about? You don't know? Did you guys not do your work? All right, thank you. Give me the scripture verse and where you see that. Revelation 5.10, right? We will, okay, well, I'm helping you out (laughs) with him. Upon the earth, it says. So there's that, what is the world to come? This is speaking of upon the earth where we're going to reign with him. Revelation 5.10 says that. Give me your other one, Craig, if there was more to that or Okay. Okay. Jesus will give us authority over the nations. So, so far, we are definitely seeing our definition about the whole inhabited world. The emphasis seems to be about reigning and having authority, right, over people, not it could be also about about having some authority over animals, but primarily this is speaking about authority over mankind, right? Over the nations. Which what does that tell you then about that kingdom time? What's going to be going on on this world in this thousand year time frame, this this millennial reign when Jesus comes back? What's going to be going on? If we're having to rule over people, what does that tell you? There are going to be people here. And we see um, this word right here come up. Nations. There's going to be also nations of people on the earth, just kind of like we have now. We're going to have Egypt. We're going to have maybe even America. Who knows, right? There's going to be nations on the earth. What else? Anything? Heaven obviously is not here yet. Under the whole heaven and the whole earth. Well, obviously there's still yet something more to come after that thousand years, which is beyond this time frame, what we're speaking of, where we're going to be reigning with him, right? We... Apparently not all men are at that place of of that perfect state. However, we, the church, when we come back, of course, it's not in the study we've been doing now. When we come back with him, we will have already received our glorified bodies. We come with him in that glorified state that we have because we're his church. 
And none of these things occur until the church age is fulfilled, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. It still goes on. The work goes on. But once the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then we will receive our glorified bodies. And it says in Revelation 19, we come with him. All right? There you go. Right. Right. So what we see then is, and this I think is a fallacy for some people that don't understand that millennial reign. You know, most people think when Armageddon occurs, that's the end of the world. But is that true? No, it is not true. We have yet a thousand-year reign that's coming ahead when we will rule with Jesus upon this earth rule over nations and over men, and there will still be a struggle going on between God and some men for his position of authority, even though he is in his, their very presence ruling and reigning in Jerusalem. Isn't that blowing your mind? I'm like, it, it, we walk by faith. They will have Jesus right there at the temple. And yet there's going to be a struggle that still goes on. So we will be given to rule over man in that time frame. Yes. Yep. I want to go back to Ephesians 1. We did not look at this one, but I do want you to go to Ephesians 1.18. She took us to Ephesians 2, and we'll... We'll follow up with that one. But I loved 118 because of kind of where it's, it starts. Before you get into chapter 2, you start in 1, right? And in 1, he opens it with a prayer for them. What does he say he wants for them in 118? Wow. Does that not apply to what we're looking at? He prays that their eyes will be opened so that they will be enlightened to understand the riches of the glory that God has for us, the inheritance that he has for us. That's what we're talking about here. He's bringing many sons to glory. This is where God is taking us one day. You are preparing right now through this kind of hard, diligent study to have a better understanding of God's agenda and purposes, to know your God better, to know his heart better, so that when you are placed in a position, and, and guess what? By the way, you only get placed in certain positions by, the, by having been... Um, tried and tested by God, he will give you that which he knows you are capable of doing. So if you want to have greater positions, not that we are vying for power, but that if you want to honor him more, if you want to bring him more glory, then you diligently apply yourself to understanding what God's bigger plan is. He has a future. The future is not what the world has been telling you. Armageddon does not come and it's all over. And when you die from this earth, it isn't just all a void and nothing. There is an eternity for us that waits. And that is what Jesus has said. He says, I placed man on the earth. I gave him dominion. I gave him glory and honor. And my intention for man was that he would continually and forever walk before me and be in fellowship with me. His intention was never that, that there would be death. But man, by man's choice, and God knew this too, 
because God gave man free will, gave him choice, he knew he had to have a plan to redeem us back, to make a way for those of us who are willing to be submissive to him, to come back into this right relationship with him. So that's what Hebrews is showing us. Who is God and who is man? And what is God's plan in salvation for man? Right now, what we're looking at specifically is the restoration of our position of authority that God had for us. Jesus will give us authority. He says, I pray that you will know in that verse. I pray you will know what is the hope. I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh-huh, yeah, please do. That's a great idea. Okay. Yep. Yep. Oh, that's interesting. So it actually has two possible definitions again. I just went to the idea of terrain, meaning that it was the physical world. But it sounds like terrain can be both. Oh, okay, so on a spiritual level, it takes on a spiritual kind of interesting. See, your context will rule for which one you pick, Celeste. That's why. Not spiritual, but physical. Yes, that's, okay, so we're back to, I was right after all. <laughs> I tell my husband that all the time, you know. I thought it was wrong once, but I was mistaken. <laughs> I was actually right. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm happy with that. <laughs> oh, Lord, help me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right, let's go to Daniel 7. We're all, and we're all done with this. We're at the very end. Tell me what you saw in Daniel 7. Sovereignty, dominion, and greatness. Will be given to the people of the highest one. I love that. So if you cannot see at this point, this world to come, what is speaking of here is that he is restoring us to what he intended for us to have all along. So it actually makes perfect sense if, if you see the pivotal point there as being verse 5, as Kay has uh, said that she feels it is, that if you understand that he's speaking about the world to come and what that entails, what that means, then everything that follows that where he speaks of man and the son of man being human beings, not Jesus, that he's restoring that to us, then it, make, it actually does make a perfect flow. The, the flow of thought there is, is crystal clear. But it's really interesting because it's been a long time since I've been in there, and you can lose it a little bit. You kind of lose, because when you go in there and you see that idea of everything is subjected to his feet, it makes you automatically want to go to Jesus in your mind. But that isn't in this context. So again, context rules for interpretation. In this context, this is speaking about mankind, 
what God is going to do for us it, through Jesus, through him having taken on uh, man's flesh and blood. He is making a way and being able to help us by that. Oh, what a good study. Yes, uh-huh. 